It's time for Taking Care of Business on Midlands 103. With thanks to the local enterprise offices of Leash, Offaly and Westmeath. Find us on localenterprise.ie and let's talk business. Midlands 103. Hello and a very good evening to you all. It's Tuesday the 11th of July. I'm Roland Berry and it's time to take care of business. Coming up between now and 8pm, I'll be joined by the co-founder of MojoFest, Glenn Mulcahy, as he prepares to launch MyMojo. It's a brand new app that is becoming the easy way to send and receive mobile video professionally. Glenn, of course, has had a long career in that whole area of mobile journalism. He now lives in Port Arlington, so we're really looking forward to hearing about that innovative development very, very shortly. Also, John, or sorry, uh, Jack Pilkington, the founder of Clun Earl Engineering, will be in studio to talk about his business. He first joined me on this show at the very, very early stages of his business, a number of weeks before a certain pandemic. Where that business has gone now is nothing short of astonishing. And also, he's working on a brand new venture that is clearly has global scalability because he's become an Enterprise Ireland client already. So he's going to tell us all about that, um, all at a very, very young age. A really inspirational story coming up in just a few moments. And also Christy Doherty of AXA Farm Insurance will be along to talk about their relationship with Kilbegan Racecourse. Um, they will be one of the main spon- They're the main sponsors of the Midlands National that takes place this coming Friday. It's a €100,000 race. And Christy will talk about the AXA Farm Insurance business, talk about kind of change within that sector too. And again, what sets their offering apart from some of their competitors. So lots coming up here on Taking Care of Business. If you want to get in touch with me here, you can do so by text or WhatsApp on 083 103. But before that, lots of scrutiny on a certain uh, broadcaster over the past couple of weeks. It's a story that doesn't seem to go away. And one thing that emerged last week, and apparently there may be announcements tonight, is that Minister Catherine Martin will appoint a forensic accountant to look through the accounts at RTE. Again, given today's revelations and declarations and statements, we don't seem to have any much more clarity on exactly how things were operating there. Well, one thing I can hazard a guess at is that a forensic accountant is likely to go a long way towards getting to the bottom of it. But what exactly is a forensic accountant? What did it do? What did it set out to do? What are their objectives? And um, from a business point of view of business owners, have you ever had to deal with a forensic accountant or at what point might such a person or indeed firm be appointed? Well, to find out more, I'd like to be joined by John McCann of MCM Accounting in Tullamore. John, of course, has been the winner of the Midlands 103 Customer Service Accountancy Firm of the Year last week, second year in a row. I believe the swelling has gone down slightly on his head. John, forensic accounting accountants, what did they do and why are they appointed typically? Good evening, Ronan, and uh, congratulations to Jack there on, on, on his award and uh, I can absolutely guarantee you the swelling hasn't gone down. <laughs> anyway, in answer to your question, um, if we kind of just look at what, what accountants do, um, accountants are generally trained traditionally to present uh, various transactions in, in, a, in a very simple format. Now, there can be questions over that, that one can actually see, um, depending on what the activity is, um, has, has, has that activity either produced a surplus of money or a, a deficit of money? And that's, that's essentially what accountants are trained to do. And there are various accounting standards to ensure they're done in a consistent manner, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and that's our basic training. Um, if you kind of go a little bit step further, you have what you call an auditor. And an auditor will then give an opinion whether he thinks the accounts that are presented by an organisation are actually uh, true and fair. And what true and fair in very simple terms means do, does, does the person looking at that um, believe that the accounts um, are uh, 
the, uh, do they fairly reflect the trading activities that have gone on or the fundraising activities and do they, do they look reasonable and that's in, in very in very simple terms if but the auditor will has, has if you like operates on the basis that the accounts are true and fair unless he actually finds to the otherwise and if he finds that he can't corroborate the any uh, back, uh, backing evidence to those accounts he will generally walk away, or what he do is he qualify his audit report. But generally, he should walk away if it's particularly bad. Then you move into the area of forensic accounting. And with a forensic accountant, his or her job is to deal with a specific issue. And he will actually, or she will, assume that there's something wrong. And they actually have to dig through the records and find you know, what the particular agenda is. Now, in this particular case, uh, if we're talking about RTE, it would appear that the agenda is to actually unearth any transactions that do not appear to have been properly disclosed. And um, it's very easy to hide transactions. Um, and and, and, and that's, that's going to be a major, a major task, whoever is appointed. And um, the one small point I would make, um, I would probably uh, put a pound to a penny that it's going to be one of the government darling friends, whether it's going to be uh, Grant Thornton and uh, Deloitte and Touche, but well, they probably can't be involved because they were the auditors and one doesn't know why they didn't pick this up before. Um, or alternatively, it could be PricewaterhouseCoopers or uh, the large firms. And my feeling on that is that none of those um, pals should be involved in this. This is a very, very important issue. It should be a firm that has an expertise and probably... Uh, has absolutely no connection to a political party and should not be a big firm because there are quite a lot of superb accountants around and they don't need to be part of a large firm. And I think that's something that's important. And I can absolutely pound to a penny, Catherine Martin will drop the ball on that one. Well, absolutely, look at I mean, the whole thing is around trust and, and finding getting the truth as well. Within that context, then, are there limitations on what a forensic accountant can review? Is there a, a time limit and say as to how far back they can go? Or does it have to be almost like terms of reference created so that they can be specific as exactly what areas they want to look into? Yeah, the simple answer is that, uh, Rowan, unlike um, a statutory auditor or unlike, um, let's say, a tax investigation, um, the terms and reference will be determined by those who actually appoint the forensic accountant. So that may be uh, to look back um, as far as they want. Now, it would probably be fair to say that generally after a period of six years, accounting records are no longer required to be maintained under the Companies Act and under the VAT Act. So you're probably looking at probably over the next, or, or, over a six-year period, but there's nothing and absolutely no restriction uh, provided the terms of reference allow that accountant to do whatever he has or she has to do. So, you know, this is where I would be hopeful that um, uh, it, it should be an completely all gloves off and completely independent. And I, that's where my reservations would be because it's a very probably difficult job, uh, particularly when somebody's been busy hiding things to try and unearth them. So it's a little bit of hide and seek, but a very good forensic accountant will always approach that this is not correct. And if you approach it's not correct, they will actually need proof that it, proof that it is correct. So that kind of sounds like a, 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 um, a double negative, but the assumption is that, it, it, that things are not right. And if you assume things are not right and you take that approach, the likelihood is you will get to the bottom of it. Yeah, well, I think people listening will be familiar with that, not just from an accountancy perspective, but even from, say, quality audits, from food safety audits. You know, it's almost assumed it's not right. Your job is to prove it is. A quick question around that then. In the modern age, with so much you know, stuff now becoming paperless and that move towards digital, is it now easier to do an audit and to do a forensic audit? Or is it actually becoming more and more difficult because now you've got paper, you've got 
emails you've got you know all your basically account systems as well um that's that's a good question Ron. i think it's probably more difficult because money flows much easier um and it's it's um there isn't the same sort of paper trail there isn't necessarily the same sort of signatures there are electronic signatures so it it, it can be difficult and i'll give you a classic case of where uh, forensic accounting would probably be um very popular um not necessarily very profitable but that would be in marriage breakups where one or other of the partners would be trying to hide either income or assets from the other partner for um obvious reasons and that um the very fact that everything is digital at this stage, I believe it's much, much more difficult. And one of the things that uh, I think you, you can spend a lot of time um, looking at the various, if you like, pronouncements on on, on, on on forensic accounting, and certainly my experience has been is sit back and look at common sense. It really is. You look at the individuals, you look at their lifestyles, you look at, 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 at their income, does it make sense? And all of a sudden, the trail will start. To, and our revenue commissioners, my best friends, um, are particularly good at that. Yeah. Very final question. Are we seeing the end of the days of invoicing for consultancy services or training? Never. That will never stop. And I hope it never stops, Rowan. <laughs> because otherwise, we'll be out of work. Absolutely. I think you know what I mean by that one as well. Training used to was going to be coverall used many years <laughs> yeah. ago. And there's, again, there's certain standards and expectations around that. John, as always, a pleasure. Go off and continue celebrating your, your most recent award. And uh, we'll talk thanks to you again very soon. Much, thanks, John. OK, thanks again That's for that. John McCann there from MCM Accounting in Tullamore. Just speaking about forensic accounting, exactly what it is. And interesting, you know, is it becoming more difficult or easier in the digital age? John suggests that actually it could be more difficult overall. Um, your, your thoughts and opinions value too. 083 3010 Time for a quick break. After that, I'll be joined by Jack Pilkington from Clonerl Engineering. Taking care of business. With thanks to the local enterprise offices of Leash, Offaly and Westmeath. Find us on localenterprise.ie and let's talk business. Still to come this evening, Christy Doherty of AXA Farm Insurance will be along to talk about their business and the offering that they provide for farmers all across the country. And that's, of course, ahead of the Midlands National at Kilbegan Race Course this coming Friday. AXA are sponsoring the standout race there, a €100,000 prize pot on offer. Also, Glenn Mulcahy will be along to talk about My Mojo. It's a brand new app and it's becoming a way to send and receive mobile video professionally. Glenn has over 20 years experience in that whole area of mobile journalism. I'm looking forward to talking to him in just about 15 minutes time. But before that, I want to introduce you to another local entrepreneur and a very young entrepreneur. He first joined me on Taking Care of Business in February 2020. He had just launched his business, Clonerl Engineering. In the intervening years, yes, we all know what kind of happened on a global level, but um, Jack Pilkington went along and began to develop that business of Clonerl Engineering. He picked up a number of local enterprise office awards from Offaly Local Enterprise Office and indeed, most recently this year as well, was highly commended for the work he has been doing. The story is only beginning there. It goes much, much further than this. So I'm delighted to welcome to the studio Jack Pilkington. Jack you're only 24 now, so we go back those three years. You were a 21-year-old setting up Clonerl Engineering. What areas do you specialise in? Good evening, Roland. Thanks very much for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so look, I suppose I set up Clonerl Engineering back at the start of 2020, and um, that's when COVID-19 hit in. So initially we started off doing lots of maintenance work and all kinds of steel fabrication work, um, mainly focusing on the uh, on the agricultural side of things. And I suppose we, we pushed on then and um, moved into kind of bigger jobs like sheds and manufacturing trailers then as well for, for some key clients and stuff like that. So I suppose, look, anything got to do with steel, really, um, we do. And um, 
it yeah it 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 has developed very well since um since since COVID nineteen the start of COVID nineteen yeah. You're currently employing eight people between full and part time. That's significant development in a couple of years. That's right. That's right. It brings plenty of headaches by times, but <laughs> um for sure yeah. Look um we have a great team there, and I suppose only for them we wouldn't be able to do all these projects and win these awards and things like that. You know, so I suppose it's about surrounding yourself with the right people. You know. Uh, which is the most important part. What does your team comprise of? Have you got kind of engineering people? Is it mainly welders? Like, and who's the main creative people? Who are the main creative people behind the products you're making? Yeah, so look, I suppose we have a team out on the road um, constantly and they're they're doing repairs and maintenance in different sites and things. Um, we we also have a kind of an erection team then for sheds and different things like that, that'd be gates or railings and stuff. Uh, we also have a kind of a research and development uh, side to the business now, I suppose, that's kind of touching in on the new company as well. Um, Alan Mann's that there and um, yeah look I suppose we have we have, we have the, te- the rest of the team then the workshop as well that comes together then for manufacturing all them things and um, yeah That new business new venture you're mentioning again it's it's quite new but you've you've advanced it significantly well along that kind of path of getting the startup already it's called AgriData Analytics Limited um, sounds completely at odds to the kind of steel fabrication that you do with Clonerl. How did the idea for it first come about and how did you go about taking that idea and begin to look at it as a viable business opportunity? That's right, I suppose. Look, it's unbelievable. It's completely a different side, steel fabrication completely. Um, we were working with some of our key clients like ICBF and Chagas back about a year ago and I suppose we've seen that there was a lack of adequate methane monitoring equipment available on the market to agricultural researchers. And I suppose um, some of the competitors' machines that was coming in from abroad and stuff was... Um, there was, there was huge costs involved and I suppose we, we decided to look into maybe a better alternative for, for the industry going forward and that's that's where we're focusing on right now and I suppose that's where AgriData Analytics Ireland was um, was was started and I suppose um, we're after coming through three phases of, of new frontiers uh, with Enterprise Ireland um, which, which was great to date and we have plans to actually launch our first prototype then in the innovation arena this year in the Plown. Okay. How was methane typically measured on a farm? Yeah, so look, I suppose there are there are a few different methods out there at the minute. Um, there's 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 one particular method that um, it's 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 basically a machine that an animal walks up to and breeds into, and I suppose we're looking to develop a kind of a better alternative to that. That's going to be a non-invasive method, um, and that will give agricultural researchers like Chagas and ICBF um, true a true understanding of what an animal is actually outputting. And I suppose it's it's kind of focusing as well on stopping the demonization of agriculture and farmers in general and um, you know that's been very topical at the minute so if we can actually get true figures on that or aid, aid the industry with um, with true figures on that I think is something that's very important going forward. When it comes then to looking at say the, the concept of, of developing a methane I think to measure methane emissions and that you know you're obviously talking the steel components which you're familiar with there's obviously electrical and different kind of calibration techniques how did you go about I suppose doing that research and, and, and creating and developing the prototype that you're going to launch in September? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's uh, it's mad to think that we're that we're now one side of the company is an actual tech side in terms of trying to develop all these sensors and uh, to be able to correlate data. And it's something that was completely different than what I was ever used to. Um, so I suppose um, from doing new frontiers, that was probably the first start starting point that we got. And it was about meeting the right people to put on the team. So we have we're lucky now to have a technical side of the team and um, that's looking into developing the sensors and that side of things. Um, and also a data analyst as well then to be able to to be able to actually go through the data and that's, uh, again that's that, yeah. a that's a huge change in just three years as well you said open up that whole brilliant area that you mightn't be overly familiar with yourself as well did you meet those people who are connected with them through the new frontiers program yeah most of them probably were met through the new frontiers program and i suppose 
the likes of doing um, a new frontiers or an ex- any kind of an accelerator program is that you're kind of surrounding yourself with like-minded people and I think that's that's an unbelievable room to be in you know um, and it can really help you pushing forward with your business you're, you always have a shoulder to lean on and ask somebody a question and they mightn't always have the answer but um, they're always there for the interest of you and I think that's the important part of it you know I've always found with a lot of Irish business owners be it a very small micro business up to big businesses you ask them to give you their elevator pitch you put them on the spot like you know even if you pitch your business you're looking for funding I think people run away from the idea they hate doing it how did you find that putting the pitch together with it like did it and did, did your pitch evolve say a huge amount from early days until the end of that programme I suppose absolutely awful at the start was the pitch <laughs> run, to be honest. Um, something's yeah, working, so, something's going right for you though. So I suppose, look, starting off, um, yeah, like pitches and stuff and standing up in front of people, I think that was, that's a big step, uh, especially when it's not in your comfort zone, you know. Um, I'd really prefer to have a welder in my hand a lot of that time. And I suppose as, te- as time went on, and especially with the Accelerator programme, um, it really helped me, I suppose, to be able to develop a better pitch and, to be able to meet people and networking and stuff and I suppose it's getting yourself out there and it's just it's just going forward really like you know and I suppose you know yourself as well in terms of doing pitches and stuff you're going to have to go through a lot of them first so it's 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 not that the next one is actually the real important one that you might think so it's sometimes about practice makes perfect and just getting out there and doing it and that's it Yeah and again you've been involved with your peers as well getting that input from mentors and particularly from people who have been there or done it like you know because a pitch is a pitch but ultimately it's your business, it's your idea, your concept, and it's about getting that out of you because do you find actually most people what they still want is they want to talk to you as the almost the, the owner and the brainchild behind it all? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Look, I suppose um, people always want to speak to the boss or speak to the hierarchy, if you like, you know. Um, and I suppose by being out there and talking and stuff, you're able to meet these people and you're able to you're able to get support from them then, I suppose, yeah. Absolutely. What next then for AgriData Analytics? Like when you launch the prototype, say at the ploughing in September, are you looking then at raising, you know, seed capital? Are you looking at venture capital investment into it? What's an extra in terms of raising funding and and developing and and scaling the business? Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, we've we've got a lot of hurdles jumped, I suppose, for sure within the last twelve months. Um, I'm sure we've plenty more ahead of us as well to actually get to a to a full saleable product. But I suppose at the minute we're actually doing preliminary tests on the product we have at the minute. Um, the first stage of the prototype if you like um, so things is actually looking very good there and in terms of we had a little setback in terms of calibrating sensors and getting things right that way but um, ploughing forward um, we will be launching the first prototype I suppose officially at the Innovation Arena this year and from there then we will be looking into getting PSSF funding uh, from Enterprise Ireland and um, so we're we're officially an and Enterprise Ireland client now as well, which is uh, which is a good step forward and stuff. So yeah, we have all these different things to look at. I suppose VCs and stuff down the line probably will be a route. Um, but for the minute, we're just focusing on trying to get a prototype up and working. That at least we have we have an actual unit there that uh, that proves the concept. Undoubtedly, there's probably more ideas floating in the back of your head as well. Yeah, look, I suppose the brain, the brain is always moving, and I suppose that's the thing about being self-employed. Sometimes you've you always have a headache, and you always have um, you always have your head thinking and moving and. Um, look, I suppose going forward, we have a few different technology ideas that's maybe going to come in co with our um, with our product and stuff. But um, if we can get the first piece out first, and I suppose baby steps to begin with running, yeah, absolutely. Don't over engineer it. Get it out in market, and you can make the iterations then. And, and look at when you've got a good team around you, and you're building that team. 
that that increases the chances of you making it um, more successful as well. Absolutely. Yeah. At the very start, Jack, I mentioned you know, you've got numerous awards from the local enterprise office, Offaly, but you picked up a an award as it turned out was actually um, a, a very special one for you on Monday last week at the Midlands One of Three Customer Service Awards. You picked up the inaugural James O'Connor Tradesperson of the Year Award. Um, you were ex- you, you were you said it in the night you were privileged to do that as well. What did it mean to you? Yeah, look, I think it's unbelievable. We did a we did a we did a bit of work there with James and a few different projects and. Um, Look, it's just unbelievable, unbelievable to be awarded with the James O'Connor Award, and I suppose it's so special to me because he was always there as a mentor in the background, and um, you know, he always had such a positive impact and positive words in everything he did, and I think it's an absolute honour to be to be classified in the in the same category as James O'Connor, you know, and uh, like to everybody there that was up for that award, like we're all were all equal winners. It was it was it was it was absolutely brilliant to be um, to, to be up for that award. Yeah, yeah it was, I was there. I had the privilege of being there myself as well, and I was there when the room of five hundred people stood up to applaud James's wife Lisa onto stage to present the award. People knew of his legacy, the work he had done with the Green Ribbon campaign for sea change, but also with with establishing accessible counselling in Tullamore. And there was a lovely kind of almost circular piece of the story that you were in fact Lisa said on the night probably the first ever nearly donor to um, to accessible counselling Tullamore that you you felt. You, know, you you had so much kind of a belief in that service that she said you actually nearly had to hassle them to get the money in. They were waiting to set up the actual charity, but you were you were there from the very start as well, and they appreciated that. I think. Yeah, that's right. Look, I suppose um, we did a bit of a fundraiser night there and stuff, and we got together a few pound for them. And I think it was a privilege to be able to give that to such a such a service here in Tullamore. Um, you know, and Lisa's a lovely woman, and um, it was just the fact that Lisa and James they were so they were so honest. Like they were very honest people, and um, the fact that they were, you know, the the was there and so easy going and very easy to talk to and stuff, you know. So they were very they were very well liked in the community. It was never about kind of pushing for like pushing out fitted out that or advertising. And I suppose he kind of hated the limelight and stuff like that. So it's you know it's it's unbelievable kind of to see a man kind of get so far in life and stuff as well, you know. So it's um. Yeah, it was an absolute privilege anyway. Yeah. An absolute inspiration to many, as undoubtedly I think you are already at such a, a tender young age of 24. It's a, a huge achievement really, both with Clonerl Engineering and now with AgriData Analytics Limited. And I can say one thing for sure, there's lots more coming as well. Jack, it's been a pleasure. Congrats on the award and uh, undoubtedly we'll be talking to you again shortly. Thanks very much, Ronan. All the best. Time now for a quick break. After that, I'm going to introduce you to Glenn Mulcahy. Glenn has just founded My Mojo. It's a brand new app for sending and receiving mobile audio. Glenn is a seasoned professional in that whole area of mobile journalism. He's sitting outside. He'll be with us in just a couple of moments. Talk to you then. Taking care of business. With thanks to the local enterprise offices of Leash, Offaly and Westmead. Find us on localenterprise.ie and let's talk business. I'd like to welcome to the studio to taking care of business, Mr. Glenn Mulcahy. Glenn is now a native of Port Arlington in County Leash, but he has a deep and vast career in media, particularly radio and television in this country. A little bit more on that later on. But he also he has over 20 years experience in that whole area of mobile journalism. He's the co-founder of Mojo Fest Limited and uh, is just about to launch a brand new app called My Mojo. And is really there to enhance the collaboration between people and professionals on with on different platforms, particularly with as uh, social or social uh, video and audience for that to explain more about exactly what it is why it's so important um, I'm delighted to be joined by Glenn now Glenn good evening and thank you for coming across the Tullamore this evening Del- Delighted to join you Ron I have to say first time in the studio here as well so it's lovely to actually finally see it after all this time There you go now it's a great evening for you too We're going to touch on my mojo in a second as well but I suppose mobile journalism uh, can you give us a quick synopsis as to what it is and maybe why it's so important at present Yeah um, well so you, you've said the 20 years in, in kind of broadcast and uh, journalism form 
terms about 12 years of that and obviously over the time that I worked between TG Car and RTE um, I would have been across multiple different kind of projects for how news is created and uh, effectively sent back to the station for broadcast um, I started teaching people how to use phones probably as far back as 2010 so it seems like a very very long time ago now and that basically, uh, both to the latter years of my career in RTE and certainly since I left RTE, that's brought me all over the world teaching big, big broadcast companies how to do it as well. So mobile journalism is a blanket term, I guess, which ultimately is journalism, but leveraging smartphones to create the entire pipeline of content, whether it's for radio or even for newspapers. I tried quite a lot of newspapers, uh, obviously, but also web and broadcast TV. Um, I guess some of the advantage of mobile journalism is you can get real time footage from people who are actually at the scene of an event or in the, you know, the immediate surrounds something that's happened as well. We, you know, and it's, is, it, is it about kind of curating all those feeds too and making sure that that you know, those feeds are corroborated as well? It's, it's verified and that type of stuff. Is that kind of where we're going with this? That is that is a huge part of it. Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's a mixed bag. I think most of the companies that I've effectively worked with have traditional infrastructure for how they make news um, and they see mobile as a sweet add-on. So exactly as you said, a lot of them would go for the low-hanging fruit, which is being able to go live from a phone straight on air. Multiples of the companies I've worked with have people on the ground in Ukraine at the moment. Every single day I'm seeing live feeds on the news, which are effectively being created with mobile phones. So that is definitely one opportunity. But then there's quite a few as well who've pushed the boundaries into both making content for television or obviously for social media. And a lot of that involves kind of doing the shooting, doing the editing on your phone, wherever you are, and then making sure that you can send that back full quality with scripts and all the other stuff that you need when you're basically doing content for air. And that in many ways is what has traditionally been the pain point because you tend to get the script by email, you get the video off, you know, God, it could be uh, WeTransfer or it could be WhatsApp, which is worse. Um, but basically, it's a separate process. And what we're trying to do is take that pain away. You, I'm looking at an article here that I found online today from 2014 and you had five mobile journalism tips and it was from RTE's Glenn Mulcahy. <laughs> Number one was don't zoom because there's no optical zoom on the iPhone. Two was proximity is important. Three was keep your phone in airplane mode which kind of makes sense if you're trying to do some broadcasting. Um, one of them was follow what others are doing so see what others are doing replicated I suppose a lot of the social media channels allow us to do that anyway. And one was start filming horizontally and keep it that way. That's quite interesting given the way, and I mean, I would have probably, without being, have any background in mobile journalism, said, you know, we should always film horizontally. And now all of a sudden we're at an age where TikTok and Instagram want us filming vertically. So it's quite amazing how things change as well. Does that, does that, um, how does that impact on, say, journalism? You have, obviously have to go with what people are looking for and how we're consuming content. Yeah, I've, I've been made to eat my hat on that one more than <laughs> once, I have to confess. Um, there's there's a woman I want to name check called Blonid Healy, who is a former colleague from RTE, who went on to work for CNN as their digital lead for EMEA, who reminds me every single time I meet her that I used to give this mantra, always shoot horizontal, because she was the one who said to me, no, no, vertical works for mobile-specific content. And I was like, no, 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 it's only the TV. She was right, I was wrong. I don't mind putting my hands up and saying mea culpa. I would now, as a pragmatist and also trying to save face, say you need to decide where the content is going. If your ultimate aim is to post it on social media, then yes, there's a lot to be said for shooting it vertically. The workflow that I would have developed, and I left that legacy, I suppose, with some of the team in RTE and Al Jazeera and others, is if you have a really good quality phone, you can shoot in a much, much higher resolution called 4K, and you can do everything from that content. Widescreen, square, vertical, anything you want. So there are ways and means to make it work for multiple platforms. Take us to MyMojo, this yeah. new app that is um, about to launch um, very, very shortly as well. When did you first start thinking about, I suppose, putting these ideas and this concept into an app form and how did you go about doing that? 
I, on my last day in RT in 2017, I posted the final post on what was then a seven-year-old or eight-year-old blog. And in that, I, I had the role of head of innovation and my thing was to try and do a crystal ball before I leave. So what are my final thoughts? And in that document, which actually came back to haunt me only a few days back, I predicted AI, talked a bit about the evolution of cloud and basically posed the suggestion that in a time in the not too distant future, maybe now, um, we wouldn't necessarily need all the massive million-dollar infrastructure and everything that's required to create news. I didn't know the pandemic was coming. I didn't know that people were going to be forced to actually rely on their mobile phones to do an awful awful lot of that content creation from home, which people did, obviously, thanks to Zoom and so on. But nonetheless, when I look back at it now, there's an element of being slightly chuffed because actually an awful lot of those predictions came through. But I was I literally just in the last week come back from Sri Lanka, where I keynoted the first mobile journalism conference that they've hosted just there. And I actually I showed that slide on the screen to say it's really bizarre when I look back at it from what is nearly six years ago now, that all these core parts like the evolution of the phones, the technology and the AI space and everything have all come true. But up until that point, no one had effectively brought it all together in a solution in the cloud. My mojo is exactly that. It is the missing link in basically trying to create a kind of a complete solution, which is all software-based and currently free, by the way. And the, the, the platform that we've launched will stay free for users. And we have a vision, a roadmap, if you like, that in the next year, we basically will have a kind of an enterprise solution. So if you, you know, if Midlands decide that they want to pop up a team of local journalism students and create a TV show, for instance, we'll give you the solution in the cloud. No CapEx, just all OpEx. And you can basically do everything via this app and a couple of phones. It sounds very, very simple as well. When it came to developing that, though, um, getting a good software developer, a good code writer on board is obviously uh, crucial to it. How was that process for you? I could use a whole load of swear words, but I'm not going to because I'm live on air. It was it was painful. I'm not going to lie. So the actual process has taken just over 18 months from initial concept. The business partner that I have, I'm very, very fortunate. He's got a very similar background to me, but he's from the US uh, and has a real can-do attitude, which I have to say, because I sat on it like a mother goose for years. He was the guy who kind of went, OK, this is a great idea. We're going to do this. And he just moved it forward. But I have to say, the entire process has been an absolute revelation to me. Like I'd, you know, I've obviously dealt with app developers for years through the conferences I've run and everything, but never had any idea of the actual nitty gritties of the process. It's tedious. I'm not going to lie to you. We went through four or five different development houses to try and get it to fruition. In the end, we hired directly. So rather than contracting it out, which is what lots of people do initially for a beta release anyway, we went straight to getting a developer on board full hands-on, 100% committed to it. And you will see it if you've downloaded the app, you'll see that it's been iterated already even since launch with two updates. That's how we intend to go forward. We're listening to feedback and we're trying to iterate really quickly and respond to the audience. Yeah, it seems to be that kind of, you get that feedback from a lot of people who are trying to create an innovative tech product. It's if you have got that developer in-house, it makes it makes all the difference it, and often the difference between success and failure on it as well. Now, for any new sort of app or any new platform as well, that initial engagement, mass adoption by people, say, in an industry as well, that's obviously going to be a key target for you. Um, how do you intend about going about that? And what sort of targets are you setting yourselves in terms of the adoption for it? So I'll do full disclosure with you and say our race was to try and get an MVP to market as quickly as possible. We were at um, the big broadcast show in Vegas in April, I think it was, and we announced that we were going into development. We got a lot of really, really good feedback initially and some great articles covering that. We got to speak to a lot of the big uh, news organizations stateside at that conference and a huge amount of them have effectively expressed upfront interest going, this sounds like exactly what we need because this is a pain point for us. We, we were kind of counting on that conversation anyway, to be fair. What we wanted to do is before the next big broadcast event, which is in Amsterdam in September, IBC, we wanted to have a product ready to go. So rather than talk about it as a concept, we could quite literally tangibly say, download it, try it, give us feedback right here, right now. 
the reason I tell you that is that that has meant we have not really yet fully embraced the kind of marketing strategy and the promotion strategy. We did a soft launch just seven days ago, and that was probably me just posting out on social media. So it wasn't exactly high, high level. But there is a logic behind it, Ron, to be honest, which is it's effectively a beta launch. We haven't announced that that way, but that's what we're doing. So we're iterating based on feedback almost in real time. Um, we're just shy of a thousand downloads, all right? Small number for the first week, but given the fact we haven't spent a single cent on marketing or amplification yet, I'm actually really happy with those numbers. Um, but we, we have actually recruited a guy who was part of the reason that we got such great press coverage in the US actually during uh, NAB. So we're hoping that with IBC only a few weeks effectively away from seven weeks at this stage that we will basically have that lead in time to really start the promotion. If we could get to six months and get to, uh, you know, I'll be optimistic and pick a number out of the sky. If we could get to maybe 15,000, 20,000 downloads for specifically what it is, I would be absolutely thrilled. I don't want it to be the next threads, not that there's any risk of that happening, to be fair. I don't want massive adoption in case it breaks the system. We've planned it for a fairly gradual rollout. Remember, every time someone uses it and uses the infrastructure, there is an actual cost to us. The service is free for people to use. So we want to do a controlled scale rather than a complete chaos. So. And that cost can, can grow exponentially too when, that kind of blow up phase as well. If you go from 10,000 users to 100,000 euros it, and at the back end the costs are, can be astronomical as well. I, I've so. heard of apps where they literally have had a bill for $2 million in the space of three days because their, their app just went through the floor or went through the roof and just, yeah, I, we don't want that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so again, like, you know, if you're, you're, your target market at the minute then, you know, you, you, you're anticipating kind of massive, I suppose, quick adoption from a lot of media agencies as well. Will it, will an app like this really kind of help people kind of jump over that threshold and, as you say, move from almost that old system of kind of teams um, into like this, in, into the platform that you're, the space you're taking it now and allow for more, more people to create, you know, uh, better content, quicker and in a more polished and nuanced format as well. Yeah, so our approach in that was fairly low-key. So you, you know my background. I've, I've been involved actually in training since 2006. And, you know, like I say, I've traveled extensively around the world teaching different organizations how to use their phone professionally. We have on the MyMojo website and Academy. We've already effectively uploaded some kind of free resources for people to get them on point. Our medium to long-term game is that if people are interested, we'll basically show you the entire workflow. Effectively, we will build your solution for you if you just tell us what you want to achieve. But to say that, we've launched it right now so that it's effectively accessible to everybody. That's why it's free. So if you're currently sending videos of the kids or the family to family members via WhatsApp and it's getting compressed to a fraction of its size, maybe no one cares. I care about quality an awful lot, clearly. <laughs> so you could use my mojo for free to send those files and the other person gets exactly what you sent them in the first place. No compression. Um, and then further down the roadmap will allow you to effectively build a virtual newsroom in the cloud. So you can do assignments, you can control your staff effectively. Not control your staff, you can track the assignments that you give your staff in real time through a da- dashboard and so on. That feature set is effectively probably six to eight months away. You do a huge amount of work, obviously, in training as well. You, there'll, there'll be a training element with you, you know, for somebody to get started using my mojo to begin with. Um, do you see then maybe as an offshoot of that business, actually that training and going back into newsrooms like here in Midlands 103 and then teaching them further about you know, uh, mobile journalism as well? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been really fortunate. I guess over the last 10 years, I've actually trained a huge amount of the independent radio stations in the country in these particular skills. Um, so I would have a great contact network on the ground in that regard. But what I really want, I mean, my ultimate aim personally, when I was discussing with Mick Reed, the co-founder, where I would like this to go, I would like it to be the solution that allows you to effectively reinvigorate local media, local journalism, because all the solutions are consolidating in superpowers like Meta and others. But actually, as you know, as proven by what you guys do here and all the other great independent radio stations and newspapers, 
it's really important that you get the local voice. And if the reason that those are not succeeding is because it's too expensive to do it, then we want to give you a free solution so that you can effectively do it and create everything that you need in the pipeline without spending any money. The, the power and influence and indeed the absolute you know, invaluable service that local radio provides across this country you know, is that unique to Ireland? You know, is that why, can you see that being replicated globally then as well? Or do other countries just not maybe care as much about their local stations? Or is the local input and voice still critical everywhere? I, th- I, I think it's more critical now than ever. Um, I, I literally over in the last week have launched a new course on the rise of um, artificial intelligence in the media and exactly what I predict that's going to do. It's pretty scary. I'll give you the shorthand. I had 30, 20 somethings in my room, most of which left the room somewhere between expecting a sleepless night or just left in complete awe. And I wasn't making anything up. This was just based on where we are right now, not even what's coming down the tracks. When you put that in context, the case study I gave them is think about the next US election. Think about how AI will be used to basically manipulate the voter base. And it's, we could be just as likely to be fall, you know, victim yeah. to it here. So the local voice and... Uh, pertinent timing, trust and integrity are really the paramount issues within the media business right now. You don't have those, you don't have a business, it's as simple as that. And that is coming to the fore, obviously, in the last couple of weeks, you know, very conscious. You mentioned yourself, you were former head of innovation at RTE up to 2017. Um, when things like trust and integrity and truth are mentioned about RTE, a lot of people probably, you know, most people probably never felt RTE would be the organisation we'd be speaking in terms of, you know, in that capacity. Um, may I ask you your own perspective on you know, what's happened over the last three weeks? Because it's a story that is not going away. It's And to be fair, completely understandably so. I, I, I would say honestly that if I was still inside the corridors of RT right now, it would be a palpable frustration and anger with my colleagues. I have lots of friends that still work in there. I know from talking to them that people are absolutely livid. It's Trust is one of those things that it takes a huge amount of time and effort to win it. You can't buy it. It's something that is earned. To throw it away the way that it has, the way it has unfolded over the last three weeks has been both frustrating, damning and really, really annoying to witness. Um, I will say one final thing on it. I don't want to hang anyone out on it, but I know Kevin Backhurst. Uh, my final role before I moved into the head of innovation was in news. Kevin was appointed as the head of news just as I was leaving. I had limited enough dealings with him, but he came into forgive the expression, but a relative poison chalice at the time. He was dealing with the fallout of Mission to Prey and everything else that had just happened. He is the best man to win back trust for the audience if people are willing to give him the chance. Um, he's already, I think, I've, I've been following the story all day today, he's already made a lot of pretty sweeping commitments with the restructuring of the former editorial board. I just hope people are willing to take a deep breath, step back from the circus, because there is a bit of a circus kind of element creeping into it, to be fair. Absolutely, yeah. But once we get back to the brass tacks, it, public service broadcasting and local journalism have a core role to play in democracy. Please, please, please don't lose sight of that. If anything, we're trying to act a little tiny bit to support that in the broader context with my mojo. Sounds, it sounds absolutely amazing. I think there's the other conversation. There's so many ways we could go on that as well. Even the fact that the way people are scrutinising from the public committees, you could ask questions about the ethics of that and, and the way, you know, people not being trained and the correct line of questioning and stuff. And we put, you know, there's there's lots of ways we could go. That we'll leave it at that for now. But Glenn, for now, thank you so much for that. Um, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, really interested to see where things go in the next uh, three to six months on that. And uh, I think, yeah, you paint an absolutely great case for the, the need for um, that local that local voice in journalism too and paint those 
those true stories because it's not that we haven't had elections already influenced by social media and, and misappropriation of information already. Glenn, keep up with it. Keep, keep up the great work and talk to you again very shortly. Thanks, Ronan. Time now for a very quick break. After that, I'm going to be talking to Christy Doherty from AXA Farm Insurance. Christy's going to talk about their business um, ahead of the Midlands National that takes place in Kilbegan Racecourse this coming Friday. There's a €100,000 prize pot up for grabs there. Christy will talk about their um, business and indeed their involvement with Kilbegan Races after this quick break. Taking care of business with thanks to the local enterprise offices of Leash, Offaly and Westmeath. Find us on localenterprise.ie and let's talk business. With so many events taking place over the Midlands over the summer, it really is just a great time to be living in the area as always. One event that's happening though is the Kilbegan Races. It takes place this Friday the 14th of July. The standard event on the day is the Midlands National. It is sponsored by AXA Farm Insurance and there's a prize pot of €100,000 available there. To find out more about AXA and about the market they're in, I'd like to be joined by Christy Doherty, the Head of Agriculture at AXA Insurance Ireland. Uh, very good evening, Christy. Could you just give us a kind of a pen picture of how long AXA has been involved in the agri-insurance sector? Thank you, Ronan. Uh, yes, uh, we joined the market back in uh, mid to mid 2018, so we're, we're just uh, at the five-year point uh, in, in, in the market, in, in the farm insurance market, and uh, we're glad to say some 30,000 customers have made the switch to us over that period of time. So uh, it's, it's been a very fruitful time for us uh, and have been associated with the AXA Midlands National has certainly played its part. And what was it that attracted AXA initially to the agri-insurance market and, and what is the difference that you can make for customers? Um, the key thing, like, like many insurance companies operating around the world, uh, they're looking to diversify their business and AXA has been phenomenally successful in the whole area of, you know, car insurance, home insurance, uh, van insurance, so all, all the motor lines and the personal lines. And uh, took a decision back in 2017 to diversify into what we call commercial insurance. So commercial insurance, everything for the business owner. Uh, and in my case, it's everything for uh, the farm um, and everybody involved in agriculture. So that was the reason the switch was made and the switch and the diversification was to, to grow the business hugely in, in this very valuable sector. And what are the kind of key points from, for farmers in particular when it comes to insurance? Because, you know, as we know, the Health and Safety Authority uh, poster statistics every year, it is often put down as one of the more dangerous sectors out there. Undoubtedly, there's been massive improvements over the while. But what are the key things from an insurance perspective that farmers should be looking out for? Well, well, certainly, uh, I suppose, from, from the safety piece, I, I think um, we could never state it enough for, for farmers to, to plan uh, what they're doing on a daily basis and, and to try to to take their time. Uh, you know, ultimately, um, in terms of trying to get jobs done, and it's often the farmer who is, is farming part-time is, is maybe more rushed in the evening and in the morning, and just we're asking them just to plan their time better. In terms of insurance and, and what it means for, for farmers, all I would say to any farmer out there is make sure you understand the cover you have. And and with that in mind, you should also understand the cover that you don't have because it's too late when the event happens. So if it's a, God forbid, a crash or, or a fire, um, it, it's too late at that stage. So you, you've got to put your thinking cap on early. You, you've got to review your insurance and say to yourself, okay, is my objective to have the correct cover in place for the business? And 
in the case of a farmer, there's a lot at stake. So there's obviously the household, but there's, there's also livestock, usually there's crops, uh, and there can be employees and there can be machinery. So it's a bigger um, concern and it's a bigger consideration. And, and it needs a little bit, I mentioned the word already, time. It needs for the farmer to take a little bit more time to prepare um, for when they meet their insurance company. And I'd encourage farmers to do that little bit more work themselves and satisfy that the cover that they need, they've thought about it, and they should shop around thereafter then to get the best value and service that's out there. There's so many areas there to look out for too that, you know, neglecting one or overlooking one could have detrimental effects on the farm. But uh, very briefly, Chris, before I let you go, um, what attracted you to getting involved with Kilbegan Races and indeed sponsoring the Midlands National? Um, where our, our main agri centre is, is based in Atlone, uh, Ronan. So it makes an awful lot of centre, an awful lot of sense for us to to give something back to the area. Um, we have a lot of clients around the Midlands. So in terms of you know Westmead, Offaly in particular, it's a very stronghold for us, and it just makes sense to to give something back and. Uh, a lot of our employees are also from the area and obviously their families. So we, we view it as an opportunity to meet our clients and, and to meet our team uh, and to, to enjoy what Kilbegan brings. And uh, Paddy is, is blessed with normally good weather and good turnout. And uh, he's a man you don't say no to Ronan that easily. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, at all is gearing up to be another fantastic event there uh, just coming Friday the 14th of July. Christy, uh, Doherty, thank you so much for coming this evening and um, all the very best with AXA and undoubtedly talk to you again in the future. Thanks a million, Ronan. And Christy is Head of Far- head of Agriculture at AXA Farm Insurance Ireland as well and he just mentioned it about the Midlands National taking place this coming Friday evening, 14th July out in Kilbegan Racecourse uh, as well as the AXA Farm Insurance uh, race worth €100,000. There's also some other races too including the, the RICAP hurdle which will be uh, the RICAP Group Handicap Hurdle as well. Again, a prize pot of €25,000 there. So plenty to play for in Kilbegan this Friday evening. You can check out kilbeganraces.ie or find them across all socials. Time for me to say a quick goodbye and uh, beat my pat out there. Joe Cooney will be here after news at 8pm with Country Roads bringing you the very best of Irish and American country music. Enjoy it. I'll talk to you all next week at 7pm. Taking care of business returns next Tuesday at 7pm with the local enterprise offices of Leash, Offaly and Westmeath. Find us on localenterprise.ie and let's talk business.